0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This
2: is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio
3: WA.
4: Good afternoon. How are you today? Great to have you along. Shortly, you are going to meet the new Vice President of the National Farmers Federation. You know him pretty well. You'll meet him shortly and he says he's pretty... Please that the lobby group is prepared to really step up the fight against anti-farming policies. So really go toe-to-toe with the federal government over policies like the phase-out of the live sheep trade. And imagine getting bitten by a crocodile when you're in the middle of nowhere. The
1: crocodile, he just took my finger and I didn't, I didn't feel it. But I saw the water go go red, and then the, that red colour is my fingers of blood.
4: Do not miss John Watson's story. He's going to tell you how he used traditional bush medicine from the bark of a nearby tree just to try and cope with the pain. And that traditional medicine might soon be turned into a pain relief gel that you can actually buy at the chemist. More about that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. First up, uh, we're going to talk about sheep because, as you know, being a Wednesday, a little later in the hour, Tracy Kilner is going to go through all the details for you with the sheep and the lamb prices from today's sale at Catanning. Uh, just a little preview, numbers were down about 65% on last week and I don't think there was much interest from the buyers yet again. Now, that means a lot of farmers are finding it really difficult to offload their sheep. Newtigate farmer Bob Ifler says he's really struggling to get more than 8,000 head off his property.
5: Yeah, well, at the moment we've got around about um, over 8,000 sheep we've got to get rid of. We've also got about 130 odd rams uh, that we can't get rid of at this stage. The um, ewes, we may be able to get rid of a bit later on down the track, but we just haven't got any any space for them at the abattoirs.
6: What have you been trying to do so far to move those sheep along?
5: Uh, we've been trying to get our space in the abattoirs so we can kill, kill a lot of the sheep, get them, get them off the farm. We have actually taken some of the sheep to sales and actually we didn't even get a bid on them. They were young ewes who took them to Wickham and Sale and it cost us $7 to get them there and $3.50 to get them back
6: what are your options at the moment if it's not getting killing space at the abattoirs you can't sell them at
5: the sales um well our options are getting less and less to be quite honest um with the rams i suppose that we'll probably have to dispose of them and we've got 130 odd odd of them which is going to be a terrible job the with the other sheep we're looking at other options we're hoping that we may be able to find some adjustment somewhere that could be one option also, hand feeding. Hand feeding costs around about if we're with our own grain, and that's still around about two dollars fifty to three dollars a week. And um, so, if we've got to feed them for say ten or twelve weeks to to get space in that a uh, place in the avatars, well then we're um, not going to make any money out of it at all. What we really need to focus on is the Saudi Arabia market and get those damn sheep over there as fast as possible. They can take up to a million sheep and that'll take a lot of the problems away. I think the other thing we must do next year is not to breed anywhere near as many lambs throughout West Australia and um, that'll also fix the problem up a lot and we'll see an increase in prices immediately once that happens.
6: So you've got about 8,000 on the ground now. How, How many have you sold already?
5: Uh, We've probably sold about 9,000 so far. So we're about, um, I think we're about 65% sold, to be quite honest, yeah.
6: Have you been in a situation like this before?
5: Uh, No, nothing like this, never like this. We actually, years ago, we had a flock reduction scheme um, that we had to shoot about 650 sheep, which we got paid for by the government. And um, at the end of that day, we were devastated, so... um, we hope that um, we'll try everything we possibly can to not have to do the same as what we did then. The other thing that really does worry me, though, is soil degradation. If we keep these sheep on, um, they're going to damage the soil, and that's going to be there for future generations. The other one is animal welfare. You know, So if any greenies or that are listening, or animal liberationists, give us a bit of a go, please.
6: Would you be able to maybe elaborate a bit more on what you mean by soil, soil degradation being a risk?
5: Yes, yeah, soil degradation occurs when, when the sheep are walking around on the grass and they break it all up, wind blows and um, the grass blows away and then uh, the soil is bare and that then a lot of the nutrients go out of the soil which is really, really long-lasting.
6: In terms of trying to keep them on, trying to keep them alive and feeding them, do you have enough feed for 8,000
5: sheep? Oh, we can, but we've got, got a lot of our grain that we've got uh, harvesting at, at the moment, we'll have to put into storage for them.
6: So, I mean, if you've got all these animals on the ground right now, hand feeding, using the feed that you have left, what does that mean for next year's flock?
5: Well, that is a, another real problem, um, Sophie, because that we need to keep our nucleus flock in, a, in good order, and it probably haven't without mating them as well. But, yeah, it does mean a lot. We, we can't simply manufacture an extra lot of food.
6: How are you feeling
5: right now? Probably pretty disappointed with um, not being able to get uh, these live sheep and that going much quicker in West Australia. You know, I think that would, would uh, fix the problem. But, you know, we have been through similar times of this, but I don't think quite so bad. So we will get out of over it. But it's
4: not got to be easy. Bob Ifler, who farms at Newdigate, about 400 kilometres southeast of Perth, and he was speaking to Sophie Johnson. 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Former ACCC boss Alan Fells has been appointed to chair a price gouging investigation following concerns supermarkets and other big companies are generating huge profits at the expense of farmers. The inquiry has been commissioned by the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU, the largest peak body representing workers in Australia. Alan Fells says he's particularly concerned about the current situation in the meat industry.
7: Prices paid to farmers have dropped very, very heavily. They're feeling it. But if you look at supermarkets, prices don't seem to fall by anything like that. Indeed, they weren't falling
8: until just recently at all. And just recently they did fall, was it between 8% or a little more than that? Yes, yes, they've, they've
7: started to come
8: down and the industry tends to
7: argue, well, it's just a delay. I'm always very wary of that sort of explanation The fact is that one of the best ways, almost easiest ways of making a profit is if your costs fall, that you keep your prices up for a time. Eventually, you may have to bring them down, but in that interim period, your
8: profit margin can go way up. And you said that there is that delay, yet it's been quite a a number of months now and prices haven't fallen anywhere near what farmers are seeing yes that's right and
7: uh you know they argue there are other costs and so on but what I really think the public needs is some kind of public inquiry into it so we can learn what's really happening in the middle and is there profiteering and price gouging going on or not um Suspicious, I think when there's a fall in costs, you'd want it to come through in prices pretty quickly.
8: And so what will you be doing as part of this inquiry? Well, I'm having hearings and hearing concerns from
7: various people uh, and then I'll do a report. But it will go on to policy questions including whether uh, the government should... Organise more investigations of prices of concern to the public, like meat prices, and an ability for the inquiry to get information that can probe and find out what's happening.
8: When looking at the supermarkets, is it is there any oversight at all at the moment on pricing? No,
7: there have been looks at it from time to time. The last look was. I don't know, 14 years ago, maybe something like that. Um, and it was a little bit, I thought, a bit of a soft report. It is true that it is difficult to actually control and regulate supermarket prices. That was tried a bit in the 70s. There are so many products and then um, if you attack markups, um, that also has various problems. Um, including ways that business can avoid that or pass the cost back to their suppliers or whatever.
8: Are you examining just supermarkets or you look at the rest of the supply chain as well?
7: Definitely look at the earlier part of it, particularly on things like meat. Somewhat concerned have been some mergers in earlier stages of the production process and whether they've made it easier to profit is a really important point. Now, I don't know that I can dig in, in depth, my own. they're not strong legal powers, but I think if there are concerns and suspicions, um, we should uh, consider asking the government to get the ACCC to use its considerable investigatory powers to get to the bottom of what's happening.
8: Um, on the Country uh, we've been looking at figures showing that, you know, earlier in the supply chain at abattoirs, that they're making large profits right now. Is that something that you'd also look at?
7: Yes, that's part of the supply chain needs to be looked at. I'll start from position of some concern that somewhere along the line, I'm not sure that some profits are being pocketed. And as I said, I'm also a bit concerned there have been some mergers in this area. Mergers can make it easier to keep prices up. I'll be doing a report, um, especially on what steps might be taken. And I'll be doing that before the end of the year.
4: Former ACCC boss, Alan Fells, who's chair of the ACTU led inquiry into price gouging. He was speaking to Eden Heinenen and Coles and Woolworth have both been contacted for comment. Uh, Woolworths has responded saying that in the last 12 months it's appeared at several government-led committee hearings to talk about inflation, competition and food security and Woolworths says it's more than happy to meet with Alan Fells as part of this inquiry. On the text from Michelle, she says we've been calling for farm gate prices to also be on meat, milk and eggs on the supermarket price tags. But politicians and so-called agri-politicians aren't even trying to pursue this. It has to be done ASAP, and Michelle's hoping that Ellen Fells recommends it too. We'll watch this space when that report comes out. Michelle, thank you for the text. What do you think? Do you uh, like the idea of that, Michelle's idea, the Farmgate price to be on the supermarket price tags? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? The text is nine604. 18 past 12.
2: You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
4: Catch up on the news headlines around about half past 12 and the new Vice President of the National Farmers Federation says he is happy that the lobby group is prepared to step up the fight against anti-farming policies, things like the phase-out of the live sheep trade. John Hassel farms at Pingerley, about 150 kilometres southeast of Perth. He's also the president of WA Farmers. And John was elected NFF vice president of the organisation's AGM in Canberra last week. David Johinki was elected president, replacing the outgoing Fiona Simpson. John, has this been a, a long-held ambition of yours?
0: Well, not really, Belinda. I initially got onto a couple of committees on the NFF because of my position as WA Farmers President, and I felt like we've been through a significant time of doing things—you know, social responsibility uh, in terms of carbon and all that sort of stuff, the water issues. But the the new federal government has just had this, av- and state government as well, have had this avalanche of stuff coming at us, and uh, and it's you know, it made me feel like we needed to step up and be a bit more mongrel, and that's what I intended to try and do is to try and get a bit of change into the NFF and start being fighting back a bit harder.
4: How do you think that's going to be received, that sort of mongrel approach?
0: <laughs> well, look, Murray um, Bob got up at the conference last week and started defending himself before David Hinkey even had his talk, and then Joe hinkey then... Um, got up and started saying, you know, we're going to fight a lot harder and uh, the federal government's not doing it the right thing by agriculture. So I was pretty happy with that right from the word go. Well,
4: that's right. That was his first day in the job as the NFF president, David Yohinke, just getting up and really launching this campaign against anti-farming policies and calling on parliamentarians to stand up against policies which threaten to, you know, Uh, take a lot of money away from farm production so you're pretty you're pretty happy with that kind of approach right from the get-go I
0: am Belinda because I think that you know what they don't realise is every time they play with the supply of food it makes food more expensive for the general population and you know that's not what we want to do we want to be able to get on with the job doing our job make a reasonable living It doesn't have to be super expensive food, but it makes it it needs to be affordable for people so that they can buy it. You know, and lamb's a classic example at the moment where the supermarkets aren't dropping their prices, but we're getting very little for it. Uh, So, you know, I think we need to be able to go out there and say to the general population, it's important for you to keep farmers farming.
4: What are the key issues you think are really driving this for you? that That really led you to put your hand up for this role, those key farming issues or policies that you really stand against?
0: Well, the of trade is obviously one of those It's a good viable legal industry, ethical, et cetera, and we're being guided by this emotional drivel and blackmail to to change that policy. There's an increased heavy vehicle road user charge, which is going to be almost predominantly upon rural people. There is an increased biosecurity level uh, levy rather There's, uh, which is just another tax. And then there's the the immigration scheme, which is you know bringing people in there, but it's not solving problems in the bush. So they're they're just four at a federal level for starters.
4: And they've been around for a while now. So how do you assess the NFF's role, you know, fighting those sort of federal government policies and being an advocate for the farm sector?
0: I'm not a big fan of criticism for the sake of it. So I'm hoping that every time we do say something, that we we come up with a solution. Now, you know, the solution with the live trade obviously is that it's already legal, it's already ethical. And we've got to stop pandering to uh, the Greens and the Animal Justice Party so Albanese can keep his seat. So the solution's probably already there for that one. But, you know, biosecurity levity, for instance, that actually should be levied on the containers coming in. They're the ones that are creating the risk instead of just taxing farmers and putting it into um, uh, general revenue. Uh, The increased heavy vehicle road user charge is just a tax for the sake of it. And we're going to fight that. And I don't know there's a solution it's except to say you need to spend your money more, more wisely. And certainly with the um, ag visa, we just about had an ag visa up and going and then the government came in and changed it. So putting good policy ideas up there, which the NFF is actually very good at doing, uh, but fighting you know, much harder at a much more guided and, and nuanced level, I think we've got to do. And we've got to come out fighting a bit harder and say what needs to be said and then then work on getting solutions.
4: And with this different approach, a different tone for the NFF, do you think there's going to be some cut through with some of those key issues that we discussed earlier? The one uh, right up there for Western Australia's farm sector, of course, being the future of the live sheep industry.
0: Well, unfortunately, it's got to the point where the only way we're going to be able to defeat this is politically, because it's a political decision, nothing more, nothing less. And, you know, we're working with the Australian Live Exporters Council and, and NFF um, to try and work out how we can do it and I've, I've put together a five-pronged approach which i've sent to the live exports council and sheep producers and i think that we can make it happen i think we can defeat this and uh, you know the government's got a choice of whether it accepts that it needs to change and i think you know out of new south wales for instance this is something that the minister hasn't heard before but the new south wales farmers federation is now saying they need live trade to get sheep out of there because of the looming animal welfare crisis because of drought now, if that's not a clear message to the government that we need to keep the trade, then I don't know what is. But it's it's political, and if we have to go down the political path, then that's what we'll do.
4: John, good to talk to you. Congratulations. Thanks, Belinda. Pindulay farmer John Hassel, who is the new vice president of the National Farmers Federation. 24 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Tony York farms at Tamman, about 180 kilometres east of Perth and has been on the NFF board since 2018. Now, he put up his hand for a tilt at the top job, the President's role, but was defeated by Victorian farmer David Johinke. Tony, why did you want the top job?
3: Look, I've been involved for about five years at a board level and certainly, you know, was willing to um, put my hand in and and nominate, so I I ran for it. I did... I mean, if you, if you get involved at that level, um, if you think you've got an opportunity and you can offer your um, capacities to take that position on, I, I was willing to do it. So I put my name in.
4: Well, you didn't quite get there. But I wonder, do you think the fact that John Hassel nominating unopposed for the vice president's role... It sort of worked against you in terms of picking up that president's role. I mean, they weren't going to put up with two Western Australians in those key roles, were they, Tony?
3: (laughs) No, I think that would be a pretty tall order. And certainly there was a feedback that it was a negative for me in terms of my my opportunity. I mean, there were three um, candidates for the president, three very good candidates, I believe. And um, certainly the fact that there was no competitive election for the vice president and John was getting into that position unimposed, meant that they were looking at the candidates for president, knowing that there was already a West Australian as as the vice president. So it certainly wasn't a positive for me. I would have thought it would but definitely have been something that the members would have been considering. And thinking about in terms of who they might support as president,
4: I think they would have called Definitely. for a recount if it had fallen your way, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. I look through the I look through the records, and there um, you know people from New South Wales that have held both positions over the years. But
8: oh, that's totally but that's acceptable. not
3: surprising, given that. <laughs> That's a, well, it's the geography. Geography's got a got a, definitely got a factor. Yeah, um, it's much easier for people to um, take on those, those roles without it being a challenge. But yep, no, you're right. It would have been very unprecedented for two mm-hmm. West Australians to hold the two positions. So, good luck for John, and perhaps unfortunate for my possibilities. That's that's the way you got to look at it.
4: I mean, it's still quite. An historic moment because I mean there are two Western Australians on the NFF board. Has that happened before?
3: I'm pretty confident it's never happened before. I mean, when you uh, got, when got on back in, board, yeah,
4: I was going to say because it was twenty. Was it 2018 that you you were appointed to the board? And it had been a couple of decades, had not it? Between drinks, yeah, having a double. No, person? A,
3: as far as I know, it had been a very more than 20 years since yeah. there'd been anybody on the board. So it was pretty rare, and now to have two. Out of eight as it is uh is pretty significant for western australia so we're we're in a good position in terms of um our representation at an, at the n f f level that's great
4: and what does that really mean? do you think i mean does that raise some of the issues from Western Australia to a higher level with the two of you on that board?
3: Well, I think we can definitely assume that they're not going to ignore two two of us <laughs> um expressing our interest in, in certain issues.
4: Now, with a new board, it's a it's a new look and it looks like a, a very new approach. Was that always where
3: this was heading? I think it's pretty um, fair to say that there's been a number of issues that have come to the forefront at a national level that are raising concerns with many farmers and um there was always going to be, let say, a tilt in emphasis and and pushback from the organisation. So take up um, the fight,
4: the more of a fight against some of these I think so. policies. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think I think um, three or four issues have really been mounting over the in term of this government, and uh, they've recently made some decisions on some on some key areas that have really pushed up, the uh, interest that your organisation has to push push back and say, hang hey, on, look, we don't really accept that particular mm-hmm. issue. And what are they? Uh, what are they for position. you, Tony? Of course, the live trade issue is very important here in terms of us in Western Australia. But across the board, um, as represented by the NFF membership, many of the members are very alarmed. So there's been very strong support across the board and across the ags to 3NFF, they just, all of the uh, arguments about um, a legitimate, ethical, uh, good track record industry that's radically improved its animal welfare outcomes is still looking at losing that trade. It just doesn't make sense. It's not good government, but the Murray-Darling, just recently, Tanya Plavisek has Uh, having a go at rewriting the water buyback proposals for the Murray-Darling. And Murray-Darling's incredibly important. It's about 15% of the gross value of ag production in Australia. And I think the industrial relations issue has also become heightened, particularly um, the redefinition of casual workers, which is really quite alarming. Um, They're moving away from... uh, High court decisions where the court has decided in common law that if the contract says you're a um, casual worker, that's what you are. So they're trying to introduce new amendments where it really muddies that and allows them, uh, some ambiguity and ability for employees to call the shots much more effectively in terms of whether they want to become permanent instead of casual.
4: Tony, really good to talk to you. Thank you so much for being part of Country Hour today. No worries, Linda. That's great. Thank you. Tony York, NFF Board Director. It's half past 12 here on The Country Hour. Just in response to the conversation just a few moments ago, we caught up with John Hassel, who is the Vice President of the National Farmers Federation. He was um, appointed to that position just last week at the NFF's annual general meeting in response to that, Matt says, John Hassell would do well to learn from the excellent outgoing president, Fiona Simpson, us versus them attitudes won't win hearts and minds to the cause. Whilst we certainly face significant issues in ag, combative approaches won't help. You'll catch more flies with honey, John Hassel, according to Matt in North Pithera, which is about 190 kilometres north-northeast of Perth. And earlier in the hour, also heard from Alan Fells, who's going to chair this price gouging investigation. And Jack says the other thing that should be investigated along with this is the how many times that Coles, Woolies or IGA have stuff on special instead of running them as a loss leader or taking a hit on their margin to run the special, they tell the wholesaler grower that they're going to be paying less for the product that week so they can run the special but maintain their margins. Meanwhile, everyone else has to cop the loss. Talk about having your cake and eating it too. Thank you for that, Jack. The text, nine double two six. Zero four On the Country Hour 28 to 1, Ellie Colvin is here
9: from the newsroom. What's in the headlines, Ellie? Thanks, Belinda. The Premier, Roger Cook, says the defection of Nationals MP Mem Beard to the Liberals is a sign of chaos and dysfunction within the opposition. Ms Beard was elected to the seat of Northwest Central for the Nationals in a by-election last year, but that seat set to be abolished in an electoral redistribution and she's now joined the Liberals. The WA Family Law Reform Practitioners Association says a recent spike in women being killed in Australia is a reminder of the need for a National Family Violence Register. A Perth woman was allegedly murdered by a man believed to be her partner at Crown Towers in Perth on Monday. Australian Femicide Watch says Alice McShearer's death marks the fifth alleged killing of a woman by a man in the past 10 days. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has expressed deep alarm at the intensification of the conflict in Gaza. His comments come as Israel defends a strike on a refugee camp in northern Gaza that's left dozens of people dead. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected calls for a ceasefire and vowed to crush Hamas after a deadly attack by militants on Israel. Thanks, Belinda. All the details in the news at one.
4: Thank you so much for that, Ali. 27 to one here on the Country Hour. Still to come, off to Catanning for a look at the yarding and the prices at the sheep sale today. Also pop into Up and catch up with a strawberry grower who started picking just last week. And also jumping over to Queensland and you probably have seen or heard the news about a whole series of fires in Queensland and you'll meet one person Really affected by that. Oh, don't miss that story shortly here on the Country Hour. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson is with you this afternoon. Joey, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division.
2: Yeah, hi, Belle. Um, yeah, we've got not a lot going on in the Southwest Land Division uh, for today and for the next few days, so Thursday and Friday. We're not expecting much however we do have a couple of uh wind uh things going on so um for friday especially we we have this uh, low pressure system or trough developing off the geraldton coast and what that's going to do is create some quite fresh or strong and gusty easterly winds you know through the central west uh basically coast Um, on Friday morning as well as Saturday morning. So um, when I talk about, you know, strong and gusty, those winds potentially during the morning period, you know, just on the western side of uh, the little ranges there could get up to about 80, potentially up to 90 kilometres per hour, uh, especially on Saturday morning. And uh, that's going to stretch all the way down the lower lower west on Saturday morning. So, yeah, a very uh, windy um, morning. We we do get these types of conditions a fair bit, as everyone would know, but it just seems like it's going to be a little bit windier than normal for those uh, quite strong and gusty winds during the morning, which will ease out during the afternoon. So um, as far as rainfall goes, we do have... Um, some thunderstorms that are starting to push down from the north um, attached to a trough. So uh, once we get into the weekend, it starts moving, you know, into the kind of southern parts of the Gascoigne and into the central wheat belt, even getting uh Close to the Perth Hills, so areas that may get those storms like Meekithara, Southern Cross, um, getting all the way down to northern. As far as rainfall goes, um, you know, we can call the rainfall out of them somewhere between 0 to 10 millimetres Bell. So most places won't get anything. So zero. Um, and but they could get some lightning, and the rain will um, most likely evaporate um, by the time it hits the ground. However, if things do line up, there is the potential to get the odd ten millimetre fall. So. Um, It is most likely going to be not a lot of rain, but some places, um, if the thunderstorms line up right, could get some storms. So that's Saturday and Sunday, uh, that feature is still in the landscape, so um, storms stretching all the way down from the Kimberley, you know, through the northern part of the Goldfields, all the way to the southwest of uh, the state. So Albany potentially could uh, get a storm on Saturday or no, Sunday. Um, however, it's a similar story. Uh, not expecting much rain, but you could get a 10 millimetre fall if you're quite lucky. And the other thing to note on Sunday is it pushes a little bit further to the east as the trough moves to the east. So, um... A little bit of you know, th- precipitation activity for the southwest land division, but n- nothing too exciting, Bell.
4: All right. Well, let's move into northern and eastern parts. Any storm activity?
2: Yeah. So um, we've got some storms uh, basically at the moment through the interior and, and eastern parts of the gold fields. Again, not producing much rain Um, and we've also got some storms over the northern parts of the Kimberley at the moment. So for today we're expecting some storms over the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley uh, to develop. Um, As far as rainfall goes, uh, some of these storms over the last 24 hours have uh, given about 20 to 25 millimetres so we can't rule out um, a 20 to 30 millimetre fall for uh, those storms for today. And also, that's a similar story for um, Thursday and Friday, but it's just covering more of the Kimberley. But uh, the main point that I want to get across is the falls will be more confined to the northern parts of the Kimberley and and maybe northeastern parts, uh, like Kununurra area and Wyndham area. But as you push further south to the areas where there's a heap of fires, um, there potentially won't be that much rain with them to squash the fires that are going on at the moment. So, yeah, Thursday and Friday, uh, storms over the Kimberley, and then that continues on Saturday and Sunday. Um, and, but certainly the northern half will, if, uh, will get the most rainfall out of those storms. Um, over the southern parts of the Kimberley. But the Pilbara in all this is uh, missing out on a lot of the thunderstorm activity apart from the far south east of the Pilbara on Saturday, Bell. And then the warnings this afternoon, Joey, what have you got? We've got some uh, strong sea breezes up the west coast um, on the Geraldine coast and also on the Gascoyne coast and the Geograph Bay has also uh, got a strong wind warning for strong sea breezes this afternoon.
4: Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate that. It's 21 to 1 here on The Country Hour. Uh, certainly hasn't been much rain about the state in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. In fact, the only part of the state to get any rain was the north. In the Kimberley, Nicholson was the only spot to get 5 millimetres or more. It recorded 11 mils, Bedford Down Airstrip 4, and Kununurra had between 2 and 3 in different sites. And then in the gas coin, Payne's find had three. But that is it. 20 to 1. Well, in the last uh, week you've been hearing in the news, seeing the photos, the video, a lot of serious fires burning in Queensland. And there are many heartbreaking stories coming out of these fires. One involves grazier Rob Scanlon, who has a drought master stud at Miriam Vale in the Gladstone region in south-east Queensland. It's a stud that he started 32 years ago. And shortly after the fire ripped through his property, he took to social media asking for anyone to come and take his stud cows, calves and heifers off his hands at any
10: price. The is nearly 2,400 acres and well over half of that has burned And the bit that didn't burn is just forest that hasn't got any pasture in it. So that means that we've got about 400 animals here, cattle that uh, have got nothing left to eat. And so we now need to feed them um, or move them away from here as soon as we can.
11: Did you have time to prepare
10: for the fire to, to reach here? And what was it that you could do? No, we had no time to prepare. No, it was uh, a really windy time when the fire started, apparently from lightning to the south of us. And that was 20 or 30 kilometres away. And by the time we got here to go to work in the morning, uh, the fire was already halfway across our paddocks. And we had no idea about that. And we tried footing in a fire break and it just ignored the fire break and continued on and burnt the whole lot, but uh, that was bad enough. But the following day, which was Sunday, it then tried to come backwards on us and come around this way from the west and also around that way from the east. So we were being threatened with being engulfed in fire.
11: What were your thoughts at that time? Were you thinking about what was going to happen to the property or was it more just thinking about right action stations?
10: Well, we were very, very busy trying to fight the fire, but also making sure that everybody was safe and also making sure that the cattle were safe. We had to move them out of the paddock just literally seconds before the flames hit and they didn't muck around. They came running all the way to the yards because they knew where to go. And we're safe here where the cattle yards are. It's all bare ground and we've got water here from the boar, um, and we've got our house just there, so, so we're safe.
11: Have you been out fighting the fire on this property yourself?
10: Yeah, so I spent all of Saturday and all of Sunday uh, with neighbours and the fires, both urban and rural, um, and it was a very, very busy time. We had planes and helicopters and bulldozers, and we had a lot of help. So our neighbours come over here and the fire went over there and then we all went over there and they've been back and forth and we've been back and forth. We we all work together.
11: And what about when you arrived um, this morning? Can you tell me a little bit about that?
10: So when I got here this morning, to my surprise, there was uh, a, uh, a ute, four-wheel drive ute, leaving our property with an empty trailer and... Um, someone calling out to me that he just rolled off a couple of round bars of hay and he headed off. I said, thank you very much. Um, so there's been so many people wanting to do little things like that. Someone from town, uh, the ice cream man, rang up and said, I'm in Rockhampton, tell me what you need and I'll go and pick it up and drop it at your front gate. And I said, get some lick blocks. I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> So, yeah, he's going to drop them at the gate as he goes past. I've always said that uh, there's a lot of goodwill out there.
11: And what's next for, for you and your property here? Well,
10: we're primarily concerned with the welfare of our people and having secured that, we're now also concerned with the welfare of our animals, which is about 400 registered stud cattle. So we can keep them here around the yards basically in the on the back lawn of our house and we can keep feeding them and feeding them but uh, there's not enough hay around the country for that sort of thing so we're um, getting a lot of calls from people that want to come and buy some and take them away and we really appreciate that and even this this line behind me has already been sold and will be trucked out on wednesday morning
4: I'm so glad he's getting those calls from people. Happy to help out. Rob Scanlon from Parawanga, Droughtmaster Stud, on his property near Miriam Vale in south-east Queensland. And he was speaking to Nikki Sorbello. Quarter to one.
2: You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
4: Heading off to Katanning just before the news at 1 and going through the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. And imagine a crocodile biting off your finger when you are a long way from medical help. Well, that is exactly what happened years ago to Newkina man John Watson when he was out hunting in WA's far north with his son Anthony. Now, to cope with the pain, John chewed up some bark from nearby trees and then applied it to the wound. And that experience was the catalyst for the development of a
1: new bush medicine pain relief gel. The crocodile, he just took my finger and I didn't, I didn't feel it, but I saw the water go, go red. And then that red color is my fingers of blood. Then straight away, I got out of there, and I went for a modular tree. I know the modular tree is a numbing, numbing medicine, Aboriginal medicine. So we used, used to use that. But anyhow, I used it. I chewed it up, and regardless, my finger was bleeding, but I put my finger in my mouth, put the modular on it, stopped numbing it all right, but it wasn't didn't stop the bleeding. I went to another tree i got a sap and put it on it to stop it from bleeding. At the time, I was living in Derby, and Mr Marshall was working for the Land Council at the time. I showed him my finger. The crocodile took my finger. And he had an idea that, oh, we should use this, I mean, take this medicine to uh, Griffith University. So he did that. So years went on by went Griffith and um, um, they put a mice in there in the cage with a hot plate and they injected this medicine into it. And, um, yeah, Paul told me that the, it was stronger than the morphine.
11: Wow. Had you ever used this bark <coughs> before? Had you used this tree before for pain relief or was it the first time when you lost your finger?
12: Yeah, he's used his bark before. Um in, in um and after the event. So um it's we sort of when we do have incidents that we revert to use in this traditional medicine.
11: Anthony, your your John's son, what did you think when you heard your dad had lost his finger?
12: Um I was right next to him um in the water, um when he left his whole finger out of the water. Um and yeah, it was to take him out and uh, tend to his wounds. Um yeah so he had his sticking out and his yeah, fingers missing, bit gruesome. Um, but yeah, we um, got his finger um, covered with medicine and to numb the pain.
11: How pleased were both of you when you were looking around and you saw this mangrove tree and you knew you'd be able to use it right then and there?
1: Yeah,
12: we got abundance of them along the river and um, it was easy access to get to it. So yeah, it, um, just quick reaction.
11: John, you mentioned that it was pretty instant pain relief. You had to do a little bit to stop the blood. What does your finger look like now?
1: It's shorter than the others. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little stump. Yes, no fingernail
11: in it. You mentioned that your story and your experiences came to the attention of Professor Ronald Quinn from Griffith University. Are you excited your knowledge of traditional medicine is potentially now being used in for, for all Australians and maybe even worldwide?
12: Yeah, well, it did open up that possibility to um, go that stage and yeah, we got to learn about IP um, and what makes up the product, the compounds within it. So we got to learn a lot. Um, and that's part of the development that we need to move towards. Uh, but yeah, it's been an exciting process to get where it is now.
11: Anthony, can you tell us a bit about where that where that process is?
12: We're still in development stage. Hopefully, that um, we will keep advancing with that process. But yeah, back in when we first started, um, we didn't know anything about it, and we've learned a lot along the process. Um, um, and have, trying to work towards commercialisation in in a big scale is um, uh, going to be our next step.
11: Yeah, and as you say, that development on a really big scale, I, I think the, the aim is to potentially use some of this for athletes. Is that right?
12: Hopefully, there yeah, we can get to um, use the product for yeah, people that um, have scratches, injuries and, and such. So who knows where it's going to go. It has opened up the door for others to actually go down this industry and we want to promote the traditional knowledge to actually get into this industry so this is an educational process as well for everyone and they could look at um, the stuff that we've gone through towards trying to um, help with producing products.
11: As you mentioned it's it's a traditional medicine but using westernised science to identify these, these compounds within the bark that have the anti-inflammatory and pain relief properties. But then getting to a point where it is commercialised whilst maintaining Aboriginal ownership, that collaboration process, how
12: important is it? it has been a lot of benefit towards actually knowing that a product can be safe, that it doesn't poison anyone, that um, we know that traditionally that it hasn't harmed any of our, um, over the centuries of using it. But, yeah, the, the reinforcement from the science side um, um, acknowledge that, um, yeah, it's a product that you can use without harming anyone. So what's next? We're going back to the Kimberley and hopefully that um, we probably may be ambassadors towards getting other regions and the rest of the Kimberley towards opening up their products towards um, wanting to get into the same position where we are at.
4: Pretty exciting project. Nukina man John Watson and his son Anthony speaking to Tara DeLangraft. And those pain relief properties of the bark may be available for Olympic athletes in the form of a gel, thanks to a partnership between John's Community and Griffith University. Just last week, the community and Professor Ronald Quinn from Griffith University were awarded the inaugural Traditional Knowledge Innovation Award – as part of the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering National Awards. Well done. Eight minutes to one o'clock. A senior marine scientist says a decline in sea cucumbers on the Shoals shoals is a tragedy for global conservation efforts. Last month, the WA Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions says that staff had anecdotally seen a decline in sea cucumber populations across all three reefs about 300 kilometres west of Broome. Sea cucumbers, or trepang, are known to be targeted by illegal Indonesian fishers and there's been another spike in illegal vessels just over the last few years. Marine science researcher Mark Meakin says the impact of illegal fishers on the Roly Shoals needs to be a priority.
13: Look, I guess your listeners are wondering, why should we care about the Raleigh Shoals? It's a, it's a group of three reefs out near the edge of the continental shelf, a long way offshore, and they're just a bunch of coral reefs, right? But actually, your listeners should care because they are some of the last reefs in the entire Indian Ocean that have been largely untouched from human impacts. They are an absolute critical baseline If we're trying to recover reefs, if we're trying to aid the recovery of coral reefs, and and they're in crisis right around the world, we have to have a target to aim for. We have to have a baseline. The Rolly Shoals is it. It's the last ones we've got left. Now, the news that uh, there's enough Indonesian illegal fishing going on there, that it's actually starting to affect populations of animals out there, that's not just bad news. That's a tragedy. The Indonesians have had a very long trade in fishing those reefs, possibly not as far south as the Raleigh Shoals, but certainly up off the, the more northern reefs off the Kimberleys and, and out to uh, Ashmore and Cardia. They've been there for centuries. In fact, Matthew Flinders, when he did the circumnavigation of Australia, noted the fact that he ran into about 60 of these vessels with a, potentially 1,000 crew on them. Um, and they were fishing what they'd always been fishing for, and that is shark fin tree pang, or sea cucumber, and trochus shell. And those are, the, those are the products there that are very valuable for them and they're the ones they're targeting.
4: Do you think that there, is, there, are, we, there are bits of weakness in terms of protecting the Roly Shoals area?
13: Well, you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing now isn't a new phenomenon. In fact, back in, uh, in the early 2000s, it was the mid-2000s, there was a massive problem with illegal fishing then. And in fact, the driver for that was also tree pain, or sea cucumber, and shark fin as well. Now, you've got to consider what these vessels look like, right? It's, it's not a big, sophisticated uh, vessel. It's basically an overgrown dugout with an engine on the back and a little hut in the middle of it. And these guys have no capacity for refrigeration, but they can store things by drying them. So shark fin, which of course is the key thing for shark fin soup, you can dry those on the roof of the cabin or up in the up in the rigging. Tree paying, you can do exactly the same thing with. All these dried products will keep and they're very valuable when you get back to Indonesia. Probably not so valuable for the fishermen themselves, but certainly very valuable for the, for the traders who buy them often and then supply them to the Chinese market, because that's basically where these things are going. And of course, in a newly rich China, where the middle class is now very large, one way to impress your friends is to, is to essentially serve those products. That's created a huge demand for um, banquet foods right across the, the tropics.
4: What do you think is an approach that we should be taking to preserve the biodiversity on those reefs? What what should we be doing better?
13: Well it's clearly enforcement's the first step. If we don't start enforcing the marine protected status of those reefs um, much better there's not going to be much left to protect. Protecting those reefs I think should be an absolute priority for any government.
4: Marine Science Senior Research Fellow Mark Meakin speaking to Roseanne Maloney. Three to one.
13: Hello, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. Hospital admission surge as health authorities warn Australia is in the middle of a new wave of COVID infections. What happened behind closed doors to torpedo Australia's bid for a free trade deal with the European Union? And was Bobby the dog really the world's oldest canine ever? We look at claims his Guinness Book of Records title might be a little wider the mark with new questions about whether he did live to the age of 31.
4: The market now, and it was a very small and sad sheep sale at Katanning this morning. Tracy Kilner's been there. Hi, Tracy, what's the story?
14: Hi, Belinda, welcome back. Um, today we only had 2,862 sheep at Katanning, that's down 5,060. The quality of the yarding was very poor, with the limited pens of well presented sheep selling to high, slightly higher values due to the low numbers on offer. Very plain sheep sold to minimal values with the worst failing to attract a bid. The highlight of the sale was a pen of new season ram lambs selling for $110, followed closely by a pen of new season prime lambs making $106 a head. Lightweight new season lambs sold to $58, trade weights returned $71, and heavyweights sold to $106 a head. The lightweight old season lambs sold to $5, trade weights made up to $83, and heavy lambs sold for $90 a head. Store ewes made from $1 to $17. The medium weight sold to $35 and heavy weights. Over 30 kilos carcass weight sold to $40 a head. A large yarding of mature rams sold from $1 to $20 a head. This has been Tracy Keelner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service.
4: Thank you so much for that, Tracy. It's a minute away from the news at one o'clock. A few texts to get through before one. This from Muz. G'day, Belinda. It's such a shame city people don't listen to the Country Hour so they know what's going on in the sheep industry. Well, they can. I mean, it's all on podcast or the web. You can stream it live. And I know Nadia on The Morning Show goes into a lot of detail about agricultural issues too. And we also have a little chat on The Breakfast Show once a week. So we do get the message there on some occasions. Thank you, Muzz. Uh, Nicola in Witchcliffe says, Read the farm gate pricing labels. Yes, I absolutely agree. I'd rather stand in an aisle and work out pricing and vote with my wallet so that farmers have a bit more power, milk, meat, fruit and veg, quick for prices to go up, very slow to come down. And Neil in Brooks says it cost our local supermarket $190 to get a lamb delivered from the processor. It then has to be cut up and packaged the meat. Thank you for that, Neil. Appreciate it. On the ABC right across Western Australia, time for the news, 1 o'clock.
8: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.